prophets to make a distinction between the prophets who have a longer message, say like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So the minor prophets are not minor in their message. They're simply designated that because they have shorter books in the Bible as compared to those others like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Tonight, we turn our attention to the book of Amos. Amos is again about judgment and restoration, a theme that we're going to find throughout this series. And again, it's all about the kingdom of God, and we have a part in this story. Throughout these minor prophets, we're going to see our story play out. And that's really the goal of this series, to find our story within their story. Here's something that I have learned in looking at these minor prophets. I think we need to do a better job of concentrating and focusing on kingdom living. You see, Christianity isn't an insurance policy. And I'm afraid that's so often how we look at Christianity. I'm baptized, I'm in, I'm good now. And there's so much more to it than that. Do we realize what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom? To be a disciple of Jesus? We've got to stop looking at Christianity as an insurance policy and look at all the blessings and the privileges that we have by being in the kingdom and showing ourselves grateful for being in the kingdom and doing anything and everything that we can to help as many people as possible get in the kingdom as well. Before we turn to Amos, look at Romans chapter 11. Let's begin reading in verse 19. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Paul writes, You will say then, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God. To those who fail, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from, from, uh, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, that's a long way around saying that God cuts off his branches. God cuts off the branches that are no longer bearing fruit. We cannot live under the illusion that I'm baptized, so I'm good. You know, I've been baptized, so I'm in. Christianity is my insurance policy. That kind of thinking is not much different than the Jews who thought that they were in because of their heritage. But, as Paul points out, not just here but in other places, your heritage is not going to save you. The message to the Jews was you cannot rely on your heritage any longer to save you. Just like being baptized can't be all that you rely on. You are never finished obeying the gospel. It is something that is continuous throughout your life. Branches that are not bearing fruit are cut off. They are thrown in the fire. They serve no purpose. The dead limbs just take up space. So they are pruned. They are cut off so the healthy can grow. 
And over and over again, God sent prophets to His chosen people to say that if they disobey, if they continue in idolatry, if they continue to do the things that they were doing and don't straighten up and fly right, that they're going to be cut off. And who's going to take their place? The Gentiles, right? That was the message over and over again. A remnant of God's people is going to be saved, but a vast number are going to be destroyed. They're going to be pruned. And that should stop, that should cause us, I should say, to stop and think. God's people that he chose would also be a people that he would cut off if they were not faithful. And there's a message in there for us as well. And it's a scary message. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 6. Paul warns the Corinthian brethren and us in the process not to repeat the mistakes of Israel. He says, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So don't ever think that the prophets don't have something to say to us. Because they do. They're still speaking. Do not assume that their message is irrelevant to us. Nothing could be further from the truth. If natural branches can be cut off, then so can we. Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer. He was from Tekoa, which is south of Lubbock. No, that's Tehoka, right? No. It's from Tekoa, which is in the southern part of Judah. And at this time, northern Israel was being ruled by Jeroboam II. He was a king who was... I guess we could say very successful, at least in one sense. He had won many battles. He had gained a lot of territory. He had created a lot of wealth for him and for some people around him. But he was a horrible king. He promoted idolatry. He promoted injustice and inequality. And finally, Amos couldn't take it any longer. So here comes Amos. He goes up to Bethel and he begins speaking out against the king and the things that he was promoting. And the book of Amos is really a record of poems and visions and sermons that Amos gives during this time. If you look at Amos chapter 6, you get a rather clear and concise theme for the entire book. It reads, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Times were good, at least for the rich. Here you have Jeroboam propping his feet up on the backs of the poor. There was great prosperity in the land. And as we mentioned last week, we often see a pattern with the people of Israel. Anytime they had prosperity, what happens? They sin. And this is no different. So here's Jeroboam, who initiated all of this turning away from God, all of this social injustice. He was a godless king. He established altars to different idols. He oppressed the poor. The people followed the actions of their leader. They bowed down to foreign gods. They oppressed the poor, selling them into debt slavery. They engaged in all types of immorality, and something had to be done. So here comes Amos. And imagine this scene. 
you have the mighty king, Jeroboam, this ruthless leader, who many people revered because he made the land prosperous. But there were a lot of people that suffered under his reign as well. And so you have this picture in your mind of Jeroboam the king propping his feet up on the backs of the poor. There were some people who were very happy with the job he was doing, even though he was totally and completely immoral and turned his back on God. And here comes Amos, who comes on the scene and says, you're a terrible king, you're a ruthless king, and you've got to go. Actually, what he said is, you're going to die. You're going to have to change your ways. That message didn't resonate very well with a king who thought himself to be successful. And so he tells a priest of all people, a priest, to send Amos away. Now, if you go and look at the design of this book, it's really pretty simple. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of poems accusing the surrounding nations of injustice. If you were to look at a map and you would, you would look at that map, you would see Amos kind of drawing a circle. And in the center of that circle, he is announcing judgment on Israel. That is the epicenter. You could well say that God had Israel in, in his crosshairs. And then you have all the nations surrounding that he would get to, but the biggest, the bulk of his, of his judgment is on Israel. Of course, Amos has much more to say to the other nations. He unleashes on them too, but, but uh, he starts with Israel because they know better. At least they should. So that's where he starts. And Amos calls them out for their grave injustices. Namely, they're ignoring the poor and selling them into slavery and then denying them legal representation. If you look at chapter 2, and starting in verse 6, we read this. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. You skip down to verse 10. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I led you in the wilderness for 40 years, that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Translation, you were once in slavery. What are you doing? I saw you in slavery, and I rescued you, and now you're selling people into slavery? What are you thinking? Move over to chapters 3 through 6, and we find a record of sermons to Israel and its leaders. Chapter 3 and verse 2 reads, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. In other words, the party is over for Israel. This nation had a great calling that came with great responsibility, and they had failed miserably. Now, they're going to pay for their sins. Because when you ignore a great calling with great response, irresponsibility, then you must endure the consequences. Now, there are a couple of keys here that we can't afford to miss. First of all, we see Amos exposing Israel's religious hypocrisy. They were still offering sacrifices on an altar. And Amos is saying, I wish you'd quit because you're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. You're making God sick by trying to worship him while you're treating his people the way that you're treating them. In other words, if you say you love God and you want to worship God, then you better treat his people in a better way. You can't get by with preaching and teaching this stuff like you're some holy roller and then turn around and treat God's people the way that you're treating them. So your, your worship is worthless. So you might as well just stop. The second theme you see here is the accusations of idolatry. 
You may remember in 1 Kings chapter 12 that Jeroboam set up two golden calves, one in Bethel, one in Dan. He, he picked people from other tribes other than Levi to, to uh, lead in worship. And since this time, idol worship had grown. And the people were bowing down to many different foreign gods. And that's where the real injustice was coming from. Because you treat people unequally and unfairly, and you have all this social injustice when you bow down to different gods. Because if you bow down to the one true God, you would understand what it means to treat his people. But when you bow down to gods that have no power, then you start treating people in a way that is wrong. And, and if you notice chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. And then in verse 14, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you. A right relationship with God must include a right relationship with His people. Treating people in a way that is honorable and respectful. Understanding that these are God's people as well. So the overriding message in this section is that because of Israel's rebellion, there is going to be a day of the Lord coming. A great army is coming to decimate the cities and take the people into captivity and into exile. And we know that this prophecy came true because 40 years later, the armies of Assyria came and did exactly as Amos had predicted. Chapters 7 through 9 record a series of visions from Amos. And these visions are symbolic of the coming day of the Lord. He sees Israel devastated by a locust swarm, by a scorching fire, and then being swallowed up like overripe fruit. In the final vision, Amos sees God destroying the idol temple in Bethel, leaving it in ruins. This is to show God's justice on the unjust leaders of Israel. And this, of course, is also to show the awesome power of God and to expose the ineptitudes of the idols that they were worshiping. But, in all of this message of doom and gloom, and of course, it was self-inflicted, but in all of this message of doom and gloom, there is a silver lining. And what we're going to see throughout the minor prophets and throughout their message is even though there is judgment, there is also restoration. And if you look at chapter 9, starting in verse 11, here is the silver lining. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and, I, and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. One day, God will restore Israel's fortunes. 
he will restore the house of David. And this is a reference, of course, to the future messianic kingdom. The family of God is going to be rebuilt. And this family will include people from all nations, not just Jews. The Gentiles will be grafted into the olive tree. Remember Romans 11 we read in the beginning. They'll be grafted into the olive tree. All the devastation caused by Israel's sin and God's judgment will one day be reversed. And this final chapter is the only sign of hope that we find in the midst of judgment. But it's huge because it speaks to us. And we can't miss this message. The book of Amos explores the relationship between God's justice and God's mercy. A good God must confront evil, and he must do something about it. We've said this on a number of occasions. A holy God cannot tolerate sin. He just can't. We ask the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? The better question is, how can a holy God save anybody? Because when confronted with sin, a holy God has to punish it. Because it is diametrically opposed to everything that he is and everything that he stands for. And so when confronted with this idolatry, with this disobedience, a holy God has to be true to himself. But here's where the mercy comes into play. God's long-term purpose is restoration for his family. He still wants what's best for his people. Why did he not give up on them? Why did he not just thwart the plan and be done with it forever? Because he sees the long-term. And he has something planned for his children. There is a bigger picture that his people cannot always see or that they lose sight of. God is there to wake the people up to his plan and to get them back on track. And he does this throughout the Old Testament, through the voice of the prophets. And you'll notice that over and over again, you find the phrase, the Lord roars. If you go back and you read Amos from front to back, you will see that phrase over and over again. The Lord roars. The Lord is roaring. The imagery is of a, of a roaring lion, still speaking, delivering a message that cannot be ignored, delivering it through the voice of prophets. And that Lord, the Lord that we serve, that we bow down to, he is roaring, and we cannot ignore it. He still roars, doesn't he? He still speaks to us through these prophets, through his word. He still speaks to us. And here's the question for all of us. Are we at ease in Zion? Are we? Are we at ease in Zion? You see, this is us. You realize that, don't you? What Amos is talking about, what he predicted, what he prophesied about is here. It's now. That future that he envisioned is here. We are it. The future kingdom is here, and we are its citizens. Those who are Christians have been grafted in. Look with me at Amos chapter 9, verse 7 and following. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Armenians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Here's what I gather from that. God knows who belongs to him. 
Those who are in his hand cannot be snatched away. He knows the faithful. And in a world where so many are devoted to so many idols, in a world where immorality is so prevalent, in a world where we see people just doing what is right in their own eyes, here's the thing. God knows the faithful. He knows who the faithful remnant are. But here's something else. He also knows who doesn't belong to him. He obviously knows those who are not faithful, who have turned their back on him. And there will be calamity that will not overtake them. I mean, that will overtake them, but they're saying this calamity, it won't confront us. It won't have anything to do with us. Oh, how wrong they are. The rebellious will not escape destruction, but the faithful will not fall to the ground. This is our story. Israel's story is our story. It becomes our story. Remember we talked about last week that seed through Abraham is who? It's Jesus. And Paul talks about in Galatians 3 that we are the heirs according to promise. That there is neither Jew nor Greek, right? That we have been grafted in. That the Jews are no longer saved by their heritage. If they're going to be saved, it's going to have to be like every one of us. By putting on Christ in baptism, right? And being a faithful disciple. Paul said this in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what this fruit looks like that we're supposed to be bearing. It looks like these things. It is led by love and it includes joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are to be good branches that produce good fruit. And of course, we're to be spreading the message, producing fruit in that way as well, bringing people to Christ so that they can be a part of the kingdom, so that they can be grafted in as well. If we're not bearing fruit, then our branch is dead, and eventually, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be pruned. It's going to be cut off because it serves no purpose. We must be faithful. We must live a life of obedience. We must make certain that we do not repeat the mistakes of the Israelites for their rebellion is recorded for our own good so that we might live differently. And so I ask you again, are you at ease in Zion? Are you looking at Christianity as some sort of insurance policy? Or are you keenly aware that you are a citizen of a kingdom? And that you are part of God's bigger plan. All of this that we're reading about in the Minor Prophets, it's coming to fruition now. We are in the Christian age. We have been allowed entrance into the kingdom. We have been grafted in. And we need to wake up to the, to the idea that it's not just about, I'm baptized and I'm in. I'm good now. No, we are to be faithful, and we are to be bearing fruit. I want you to think about what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. I want you to think about what it means to be the new Israel. I want you to think about what it means to be sitting in someone else's seat. Because that's kind of what we're doing, isn't it? Centuries ago, others were sitting where you sat. And guess what happened to them? They were cut off. Don't let that happen to you. Don't be at ease. Bear fruit. Show that you cherish and honor your citizenship by being a fruit-bearing disciple. 
you have a need tonight that we can help you with, if you are at ease or comfortable, and maybe you recognize that and you're ready to do something about it, then let us help you. If you're not a child of God and perhaps you'd like to study with someone or perhaps you have been studying and, and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, don't wait for that. What is holding you back? Don't leave here tonight without being right with God and certainly don't leave here being at ease. Be here ready to bear fruit. If you have a need tonight we can help you with, come now as we stand and as we sing.